So today, this afternoon, many of you will be watching the Super Bowl or you'll be watching Super Bowl commercials or something like that. My family is having a Super Bowl party as a family and we went and got stuff yesterday for this party and we're gonna hang out together and I'm gonna watch the game and they're gonna watch commercials and it's gonna be fun. As I was talking about this with my family, my five-year-old said, I will watch the game with you. I'm like, that'd be awesome. I'd love to have somebody watch the game with me. And he said, it's the Rams versus the who, which I had to stop there. I'm like, he knows somebody's in the Super Bowl. Like, he knows the name. I'm getting so pride, just building up in me, my five-year-old. So they're playing the Patriots. He goes, oh, yeah. He said, well, Daddy, I'm voting for the Patriots. Now, I just want to say, normally, I would be like, oh, because like for the last, what, 20 out of 30 years they've been in the Super Bowl, and so I'm always voting against them. But I said, why is that, buddy? He goes, well, because, Daddy, they beat the team that you love. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm going with you then. We're both going to be doing this. Down with the Rams. Okay. Did you know that a little over 50 years ago, the first Super Bowl looked very different from Super Bowl 53? That the first Super Bowl, which wasn't even called Super Bowl, it was the NFL, AFL, national, or championship game. Huzzah for a mouthful of stuff. Now, that was what it was called officially, although the owner of the Chiefs had already suggested Super Bowl, and so some people in the media were calling it Super Bowl, so it was a confusion there. They chose the stadium six weeks before the game. I mean, just picture that, the amount of chaos involved in that. The tickets were on sale. Ready for this? The highest ticket was $12. <laughs> About 90 bucks today. $12. And yet, there were still a little over 30,000 empty seats in the arena for the Super Bowl. At one point, the scoreboard, part of it broke. And it fell, and thank God, it landed in the section that was empty. After halftime at kickoff, there were two networks actually doing this, the game, in this case. Um, and one of the networks wasn't ready. They kicked the ball off, and they had to call it and kick the ball off again. This was the first Super Bowl. It was kind of a mess. I mean, it did not look like, if you looked at that, and you look at what we have today, it, it, you would not necessarily have thought we'd ever gotten to this point by looking at that. Now, some of you may be upset with what I'm about to say. Jesus, when he started the whole kingdom thing, in the beginning, he looked a little bit like Super Bowl I. It was kind of a mess. And he made some decisions that if you're a strategic business thinker, you would not have made the same decisions that he made. He kind of looks like, again, please forgive me, he kind of looks like he doesn't know what he's doing. Let me show you. Open up your Bible to Luke chapter 6. Let me show you that Jesus doesn't know what he's doing. Sorry, I just had to say that way. Sorry, Luke chapter 5. Apparently, I don't know what I'm doing. Luke chapter 5, 
beginning in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. Now, a little background. We know from Mark's gospel that this took place near the Sea of Galilee. There's a road that runs around the sea, by the sea. You've got a tax booth. There's a tax collector sitting there. Now, let me tell you something about tax collectors to give you an idea. Rome, at this point, was not collecting its own taxes in this region. Rather, people could bid on being the ones to collect the taxes. And the reason you would do that is because then you could collect more taxes, and that's how you would line your pockets. However, if you were the one doing the bidding, you had enough money to hire peons to collect the taxes for you. Well, guess what they were doing? They were collecting enough to pay you, but also collecting enough to pay themselves. Now, let me just add to it. Um, How many of you like paying taxes? Anybody? I mean, we understand, I think, that there's a good reason for our taxes. Like, we need the services they provide, but nobody looks at their check stub and goes, yes, they took an extra 200 out this month, you know? And as we get towards that fateful day in April, uh, no, we just don't like, nobody likes paying taxes, right? Well, what if you were paying taxes to somebody who, so last year when we did our taxes, um, one of the people that filed something for us filed it wrong. We got a message from the IRS. They wanted us to pay, we wanted us to pay extra taxes on $300,000. Yeah, that's what we're like. (laughs) However, we were able to get that overturned because there's laws in our country and there's people that will help you when you are on the right side of it, even against the IRS. In the day of Jesus, the tax collectors were more like the mafia. When they wanted your money, they're going to take your money. They work for Rome, You can't just like, I'm going to go grab my lawyer and he's going to, no. They're going to take the money. They're taking your taxes more than what you owe to line their own pockets. You have no say in it because they're a little bit like the mafia. And here is maybe the worst part. Imagine that we had lost that first war against Britain. And we were still under British rule. From across the ocean. Hey, stop that. (laughs) Stuart's over there going, yay! (laughs) Imagine we were still under British rule and the taxes that you were paying, guess what they were primarily going for? Them. And you know who's collecting them? An American. An American using mafia tactics, is collecting more money from you than you actually owe to line his own pockets and to support Britain. How do you feel about tax collectors? They were hated. They hated tax collectors. Not only was all that true, but religiously, they were unclean. They worked for the enemy. They worked for Rome. I mean, these guys are just terrible. And so, go back into the text, 
with that background. And Jesus said to him, stay away from my movement. I am completely against you. And here's a picture of the people that I'm against. Everybody rally around me because we all stand for the same thing. That probably would have been a good move. I mean, he could have gathered so many people following him if he had a movement to go against the tax collectors. But what he does here, he says to him, follow me. Follow me. Now, let's just imagine for a moment that he did that, and then he gave him a position in the basement, like sort and mail. Maybe he felt bad for the tax collector, just wanted to do something nice for him, so he gave him a position. He not only tells his tax collector, follow me, but he also puts him as a leader in his organization. In fact, one of the 12. Like, these are the guys out front. Why in the world would you ever do that unless you just want to tank your organization? I mean, this is one of his worst moves right here. Tell you what it reminds me of. Um, Miracle on 34th Street. How many of you seen it? Raise your hand. Everybody else, you should see it next Christmas. It's really good. Although, did you know it's not a Christmas movie? It actually came out in the summer. Isn't that weird? It did. It came out in the summer. It wasn't a Christmas movie originally. It is now. It's a great movie. My family loved Miracle on 34th Street. Do you remember the scene where Chris Kringle, he's in the shop, and, and here comes the little kid, and he sits on his lap, and the little kid starts mumbling something that Chris Kringle's able to understand, something about a fire truck, and it's like, blah, 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 and Chris Kringle gets it all, and the mom is standing behind the kid, and the mom's going, no. And Chris Kringle looks at her and looks at the kid, oh, you'll get one of those. And the little kid gets off his lap, and the mom goes, Son, why don't you go over there? I need to have a word with Santa. And I mean, only as moms can say it. You know what that is. And she's like, why did you do that? Macy's doesn't carry these. I've been all over the place. My feet hurt. I mean, it is nowhere. You can't get one of these. And he goes, now, you don't think I would have said that if, I, if you couldn't get one, would you? And he pulls out a little tab. He goes, now, I want you to go over. And he gives this store on some other street like when. She goes, but are you kidding me? And he goes, no, 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 go over there. You can find them there. In fact, they're actually a really good price. And she's walking away dumbfounded. And she goes up and she tells the manager, and, and he's like, what? And he's flipping out because their Santa Claus at Christmas time is sending folks to other toy stores. Is that not the most ridiculous business movement you could think of? That's exactly what I feel like Jesus is doing here calling a tax collector to be a primary disciple, an apostle, to lead the organization makes no business sense. And you know what? Here's part of the reasons why. Look back in the text. Because it gets worse. I mean, it's just gonna spiral on Jesus. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him, which is a pretty incredible thing to do. Um, he's gonna leave this whole tax collecting thing behind and he may still owe money to the person that hired him because he's a peon tax collector. He's not a chief tax collector. And he leaves it and follows. And then, here we go. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of... All right. You got a tax collector. Everybody hates him. 
Who do you think the friends are of the tax collector? Other tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes. I mean, everybody that the, it's all the bad people because those are the only people that are hanging around with him. So what happens when you call a tax collector to be a leader in your organization? What do you think he's gonna bring with him? A bunch of more people that you have to be ashamed of, that you have to hide because it's gonna totally derail your organization. And guess what? That's exactly what happens. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. You bring sinners into this thing and by golly, they seem to be bringing more sinners with them. Is that really what you want for your fledgling religious organization? A bunch of hated sinners who are unclean? Who's gonna follow that? And here's what happens. Now, what you may not realize is that in the story before this, it's really his first major encounter with the religious elite. Right now, if you want to grow a religious business, wouldn't it be good to get in with those people that are connected with everybody? I mean, the Pharisees are looked up to. They are the ones that all the people look to. And so Jesus says, you're forgiven. And these Pharisees are like, whoa, wait a minute. And by the way, rightfully so, right? I mean, only God can forgive sins, amen? Okay, so you all agree with the Pharisees. Yeah, me too. So what are you doing? Like, you can't do that. And then he does this miracle. Now, I want you to think with me for a moment. Do you remember, and if you don't, I'll tell it to you. In the Gospel of John, they see a man born blind. And the disciples ask this question, which we would never ask this question initially. Like their first question is, well, who sinned, his parents or him? It's an odd question to ask about a man born blind. But there is such a connection between sin and physical ailments. So that if you have something wrong with you, it likely has something to do with your sin. So, this guy who is a paralytic likely has sin in his life, which is why he's paralyzed. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, they're like, you can't do that. But he says, oh yeah? Stand up and walk. What happens when he heals him? He shows that he can get rid of that thing that would have been causing the sin. Which means what? He must have had his sins forgiven. And here's the strange thing at the end of this particular story, verse 26. And amazement seized them all. See, this is a moment here where Jesus seems to kind of turn the tables a little bit. The religious leaders really don't like what he did. But then when he heals this guy, at least there's enough to go, whoa. Like, that is pretty incredible. He just made this guy walk. And I don't know, could he have forgiven those sins? Because I don't know if this guy could walk if he still had sin. Like I, and they're amazed by it. And here's my point. Jesus, you're going the right direction. Like they seem to be going, okay, maybe you've got them. And so what do you do? You turn around and you invite a, a tax collector to be a leader in your organization. He then invites a bunch of people who are also sinners and tax collectors to come join him. And now the Pharisees are like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This is going way too far. And here's what happens. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Golly, what are you doing? 
Why would you have table fellowship with those people? Because here's the thing you need to know. If you are a Pharisee, holiness comes primarily through separation. I'm going to be separate from the sinners. Because if I get in with the sinners, what's going to happen? They're going to rub off on me. I'm going to be unclean. I'm going to, no, 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 no. I separate myself. I would never, ever have table fellowship with sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. No way. And the fact that you're doing that, that you're accepting them, because by the way, table fellowship was a way of acceptance in the culture. Like to actually sit and have that meal, it's not just like, hey, we're having a good time, let's talk, yeah, how was your day? No, there was an acceptance, there was an embracing happening at this table fellowship, and the Pharisees know it. They recognize it. Why are you doing that? And I jump back to the business plan. I mean, here's the thing that Jesus just did. In this passage, he kind of casts his lot. He throws himself all into this particular business plan. Because once he has table fellowship with this giant group of sinners, you don't go back from that. Like, you don't, oh, wait, 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 no, 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 I made a mistake. I, that really went, I mean, he's, he's going all in. Now, um, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and so it's kind of a sports day, and so I'm going to do another sports illustration. I have an excuse. But if you are even like a bandwagon Mavericks fan, you need to know the, the trade that we made this week. Yes, there's some people doing this. Good, yeah, right. Um, incredible plan. I can't believe we get him. This seven-foot-three amazing basketball player. However, we also went all in. Because in order to get this player, we gave up our cap space, two first-round picks. We've already given up, and in the trade, we gave up our last year's first-round pick. And in order to get the other guy on our team, we gave up another first-round pick. What we did is say, this is it, or for the next few years, we're probably going to stink. I mean, we went all in. Jesus is going all in here. That's what this plan is. And it leads me to this question. Does he know what he's doing? Super Bowl one, man, they were just like, let's try this, let's do this. And they were all over the place. Is that Jesus? I mean, was he wandering along and he saw the tax collector and he went, oh, by the way, um, if his tax booth is down here, how many times has Jesus been preaching down by the sea? This is a regular thing for him, right? Do you know that Matthew or Levi may have actually taxed the very people that Jesus was preaching to at other occasions? How do they feel about him? And as if Jesus goes, oh, wait, um, hey, you, like, I need some more people. You want to come? Oh, you're a tax collector? Oh, dang, <laughs> why did I do that? Why did he do this? It was not to have the best business strategy. It was not because he thought, all right, I want to build the kingdom as quickly as I can. Let's get the right people. Let's get them going. Then we have the right network. And then we can just, boom, get up there. 
No, he has a very different explanation. And it should challenge all of us about the way we think about what the kingdom is all about. Look at how he responds. Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. All right, little illustration he gives. It's not sports, but we'll let it go for today. He says, when you're sick, where do you go? To the doctor, right? Do you ever go to the doctor when you're not sick? I mean, you may think you're sick and go to the doctor, but if you're just feeling great, like, yeah, I'm feeling wonderful. Do you ever call up the doctor? I'd like to make an appointment. You get in. You get weighed. You get your blood pressure checked. You get in the doctor. So what's wrong with you? And you go, nothing. I'm good. Why are you here? I just wanted to say hi. You had to make an appointment for that? Like you couldn't just, you don't do that, right? We don't go to the doctor unless we're sick. The doctor is there because we're sick. That's his illustration. That's how he wants to explain what he is about. The doctor is there for people who are sick. People who are sick go to the doctor, not people who are well. And so then he says this, I have not come to call the righteous. And I had to stop there when I first read that because I was like really thinking through this passage and I have not come to call the righteous. There's a group of people Jesus didn't come to call? Like I thought he came to call everybody. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, doctor, patient who is sick. Over here we have sinner And what is Jesus? Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him should have eternal life. Savior. He came to take our sin. He came to give us new life. Who needs a savior? Not the righteous. Why would the righteous need a sinner? A savior. Any more than A well person, a healthy person, would need a doctor. But I'm a savior. I actually came for the tax collector. My entire mission, fundamentally what I'm about, is the tax collector. You see, you're looking at this completely wrong because here's your primary view of holiness. It's about separation. It's about being away from those who are sinful. It's about making sure that I surround myself only with those folks that are like me that'll keep me on the right path. Those folks that are like me that make sure I don't get unclean. But those people out there, those are sinners. And Jesus is going, I mean, just get the image here. Here's the huddled up Pharisees in all of their righteousness, except there's one person that's not standing with them, the Savior. Because where's the Savior? Well, in this passage, and where I think he is always, is he's standing over here with the sinners because he's a Savior. It's what he came for. The entire kingdom is built not on righteous people who already know everything and think they've got it all down. The kingdom is built on people who don't have it all together. Amen. 
people who are messed up, people who have screwed up, people who continue to screw up, people who don't have all the right answers. Those are the very people that Jesus came and said, I'm here for you because the path I have, I have laid out. I've come to call sinners to repentance. I've come to bring them into a new way of life. You see, separation does not produce sainthood. It never does. You know what it produces? Legalism. Arrogance. Separation never produces sainthood. We're actually called, church, to be with sinners. I have a question for you. And I'm asking you just to think about it. Not in a guilty kind of way, but in a very factual kind of way. What friends do you have that don't know him, that are the tax collectors, that are the prostitutes, that are the sinners? What friends do we have that are those people? You know, I had this, I, I wondered to myself, and, and this goes too far, but this is as I'm thinking through this passage. Like, they should be in our church. And it makes me wonder, like, does Jesus just want to hang out with a bunch of people who already know him when he spent his entire ministry seeking those who didn't? When it was always about seeking the lost? You know what would be incredible? If Redemption Church became known as the church where sinners were actually invited in, where they were sitting in our plastic white pews, where, where people that would not feel comfortable in a church were actually here. Now, some of us, that'd be seriously uncomfortable because there's some sin out there that we really don't like. There's some sin out there that makes us just, and we fall into separation. Let's get away from them. And yet, the very nature and heart of the kingdom was to be with them, was to be with the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes. And fill in the blank in our particular world. I mean, let me just give you the biggest one for the church, at least in my opinion. Homosexuals. That particular group of people has been treated so poorly by the church. But here's the thing. Why? Because we're so afraid that if they're invited in, it means we must be accepting everything. We must be just saying it's all okay. No, that's how the Pharisees viewed it. It's the very reason they wouldn't have table fellowship. Because if I'm eating dinner with you, I must be saying everything you do is just fine, I'm good with all of it, and God accepts you just as you are. Guess what? God does accept you just as you are, but he wants more for your life. And just because you are hanging around with somebody who's a sinner doesn't mean you just suddenly take it on. But I guarantee you this, you hang around too long with the saints only, and you're gonna get legalistic. 
you're going to get arrogant. You're going to get to a point where the sinner doesn't want to be around you. And to be honest, there's going to be Christians who don't want to be around you. Have you ever met that Christian? You get that way by separating out and thinking. I mean, basically, you fall into the righteous category. I'm the righteous one. Got it all down. In essence, I don't really need Jesus, only kind of need Jesus. But man, when I know I'm a sinner, and I know what he's done in my life, and I know that he's accepted me, like he's forgiven all of my sin, and he's invited me, I mean, as Deacon Laurie was talking about, to go with him, he didn't just go like, I'm saving you, now go to the corner, go to the basement, go work on the mail. He took a tax collector and said, you're the head of my organization, or one of them, and he's taking all of us as sinners, and he's saying, no, I want to use you. I don't want you to hide. I want you to be front and center and be taking me to others, because that's the nature of the kingdom of God. It is not separation. It is invitation. It is saying we have the love of Jesus. We have hope. And you know what? I will be your friend even if you never come to Jesus. Because it's not about manipulation. It's not about developing a relationship just so I can bring you to Jesus. And after a while, if you don't come, well, I'll go find somebody else to develop a relationship. That is so two-faced. It is about loving people where they are and just loving them. Do you know how many people Jesus healed and never once gave them the four spiritual laws? Never once did he say, Okay, now that I've done this for you, no. He just kept saying, yeah, I'll heal you. Come, I'll preach to you. I'll come have dinner in your home. I'll go eat with all these tax collectors because that's what he was about and it is what his people are called to be about. If you look at the top 20 um, TV uh, single programs ever, out of the top 20, 17 are Super Bowls. The most people watched on a single network, 17 out of 20 are Super Bowls, and the top eight are all Super Bowls. And then it's the finale of MASH, number nine. <laughs> I went and looked at tickets yesterday just to see. The cheapest ticket I could find was $2,500. <laughs> okay. The Super Bowl has gone from Super Bowl I, where it had 30,000 empty seats and 10 to $12 tickets, to the cheapest ticket being $2,500. And it is the most successful thing on television, period. But what happened with the Jesus movement? It started with fishermen, tax collectors. And can I tell you, it has blown the Super Bowl out of the water. I mean, billions of people claim Christ and have claimed Christ. I mean, it is just gigantic. And here is my encouragement for every person in this room. When we go on mission, whether that is somewhere else or 
it is to that neighbor or it is to that coworker or it is going to a place where you know sinners hang out and you just go there to be with them. Jesus' plan for kingdom growth was not a strategy. It was the Holy Spirit. That is our plan too. You see, the reason he went from this very terrible decision to get a tax collector to billions of people following him is because of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have the best plans. I'm not saying don't think strategically. I'm just saying don't rely on your plans only. Don't feel like because you're not sure what to do or where to go or what to say that you can't do it. Let me tell you this. You can't get a sinner really any further away from Christ than he already is. And I know what you're thinking. No, I can. I can say something so stupid that he's like, I want nothing to do with Jesus. Look, he's either with Jesus or he's not. She's either with Jesus or she's not. Stop worrying about pushing them away or their sin infecting you and trust the Spirit of God and step out and do kingdom work, which is being with those who need the kingdom and need a savior. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for our Savior Jesus. That he would come and he would live this life, that he would do everything necessary, that when we trust him, we know forgiveness and eternal life. We know relationship with you. Lord, don't let us hoard that. Lord, right now, by the power of your spirit, I pray that every one of us would be led, would be inspired to step out, especially on a World Mission Sunday, to step out and to be with those who need a savior because that's what our savior did. We ask this for his honor and for his glory and in his name, amen.